As we are in the book of Romans, we are in the midst of that wonderful chapter, chapter 8. There are certain parts of sarcastic EC that are just wondering, the more I read this chapter, which of course I've had memorized for years, um, the more I realize that we seem to take a few verses out of it that are really quite wonderful, and then the whole verse, the whole section sometimes falls, shall we say, a little bit to the side. So we love this verse 15, Abba Father. We love the Roman road. Uh, But there are a few other verses in here which build the context of what is a long argument that, well, are very important not to forget. As much as we love Romans 8.15, or as much as we love the wonderful reflection uh, in verses 38.30, there are a lot of other verses for us to delight in and be challenged by. I want to remind us where we are in our outline. 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4, was an unveiling of God's righteousness in contradiction to both Gentile and Jewish unrighteousness in relationship to the character of God that was revealed in all of creation and the revealed character of God in the uh, Word of God in His law that the Jewish uh, people had been blessed to receive, that Israel had been the caretakers of. And so through one through four, God laid out through Paul why both groups of folks are rightly under God's judgment. And then we moved in chapters five through eight into this new covenant. God is going to create a new covenant, which is why we've used a lot of old covenant language and new creation. And of course, the more we get into chapter 8, the more we're going to hear about this new creation. We already know that we're new creations, but it's also going to be an implication of that, that creation itself is going to be renewed. And so we have new covenant and new creation in chapters 5 through 8. And then we're going to move in in a week or two or three uh, into chapters 9 and 11, uh, where we see God's faithfulness and Israel's failure. And it's going to be very near and dear to Paul's heart to struggle with his own people, his family. There's really no evidence that any of his family members followed him. He spent 10 years at home after his conversion. And we can only imagine that his cries in chapter 9 that he wishes he could be condemned if his family, if his brothers and sisters, if his people would hear the good news and confess their need for the Messiah. There is a faithfulness of God and there is a reality of Israel's unbelief that Paul is going to unpack. And then finally in verses 12 through 6, uh, sorry, chapters 12 through 16, he's going to relay the faithfulness and fellowship, the implications of all that God has done, the faithfulness and fellowship that God's people have to one another and in the wider world. And so we are going to continue to build on that this morning. We are in chapters 8. We're going to read verses 12 through 17. Wonderful and marvelous text that it is. Romans 8, 12 through 17. Hear now God's word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, 
you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Thank you that the Spirit is everywhere in this passage, God. Thank you that we don't have to rely purely on what's between our ears, but knowing that you desire your word to be alive, that it is empowered by your spirit to be sharper than any two-edged sword, rearranging us into a pleasing offering. We ask that you would rearrange thoughts this morning in such a way that your people would be built up and encouraged. And Lord, those thoughts which are not reflective of your word, may those thoughts quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So I've made comment on this before, and I, and I will again. We have to remember that Jewish writers are not the same necessarily as uh, linear writers uh, or people who are writing instruction manuals or theological tomes. Uh, those who have been impacted by the Enlightenment and Greek thinking have a tendency to write theology that starts at point A and goes right through, in an alphabetical sense, A, B, C, D, E. But there's a way in which Jewish thinking is more like a corkscrew or more like, I don't know, there's probably some reference to a helix or something that someone could do better than I am. But there's this reality that even as it loops and heads forward, it loops back around and it retouches on themes that it had already unpacked. And in fact, what was left is um, in the beginning is increased in its richness and fullness and beauty by the next time that it's referred to. So it's more like a curly cue that keeps stretching on, and it certainly is imparting new knowledge, but it's constantly returning to themes. It's more like, and I think you've heard many theologians and scholars use this analogy for Paul in his writing and Scripture as a whole. It's more like a symphony. It's more music than it is linear. That is to say that those things in which great uh, composers do, where they introduce all kinds of of melodies and themes and ideas early on, and then maybe don't touch on them for a while and then bring them back and elaborate and increase them. There is a beauty in the way in which Paul loops back around. And so it's not surprising that we have in this text ideas that were already presented to us in Romans 3 and in Romans 5, let alone in Exodus or Hosea. There is a wonderful way in which what Paul is saying in 8 is an elaboration and a completion, a richness that is being added to themes already present. And so we take this opportunity to see in chapters 12, uh, chapters, verses 12 through 17, the wonderful recitation in, and also enriching and deepening of these great truths that Paul has been laying out 
It's a way in which ideas get planted and then we come back and we water and they grow a little more and then we let them sit and then we come back and we water them a little more and it gives opportunity for processing and growth and richness. It's why oftentimes we have difficulties reading books like the book of Proverbs, which may use uh, instructions about the tongue 20, 30 times throughout the book of Proverbs. And if we only take one, we don't understand the whole picture. Or sometimes a challenge folks have in reading Revelation, where they read it and they think it's one sequence as another, as opposed to a returning to themes and giving them different pictures. It impacts the way we read Scripture, and it certainly impacts the way we read Paul. So with that wonderfully endearing and uh, memorable introduction, let's jump into the text itself. What we have in verse 12 is a wonderful returning to a theme. Because EC, you said that when Paul says brothers, he's talking about the Jewish folks. But clearly in Romans 8 verse 12, when he says, so see brothers, he's talking to everybody. Yes, because here in 8, what he's done is brought the unity of who we are in Christ, bringing Jew and Gentile now into the same category, into the same family. Some translations actually trying to reinforce this point where he's theologically making the next move, taking those who were disparate and putting them into one family. That they will actually translate, so then, family members. We are debtors. And now he's talking, of course, to what Christ has done in verse 11. And he's talking about what it means to be made alive. And then Paul, in a form that I'm so grateful for, appears to be distracted and launches into a, something of a parenthesis before returning to the theme in verse 17 of what it means to be debtors to Christ. But it's an important parenthesis. And so we'll play it out this morning. We are, first and foremost, debtors, but not to the flesh, because we've been set free. And because we have been set free, we are heirs with Christ. And so that's the big idea and flow this morning. Debtors, why are we debtors? Because of verses 1 through 11 in chapter 8. We'll jump back to Genesis. The challenge of Adam and Eve, one way of putting it, is that they were indebted to God. He created them. He gave them everything. And part of the promise of the serpent was, you can be like God. You can be out of debt. You can be not dependent. You can be independent. And so there is a real way in which a healthy relationship with God does have a sense of indebtedness. Not in the way that we feel like when we run our credit cards up too much or we have too much school debt or inevitable ways in which sin creeps in and we become debtors to the flesh, but in the healthiest, richest sense of being interconnected and interrelated and knowing that I do owe you something and how much more do I owe the one who gave me life? That being in community, right, there is a sense in which the heart owes something to the lungs, and the lung owes something to the heart, and the hand owes something to the stomach, and the stomach something to the hand, because as the body works together, it provides strength for every part. Hence the reason that there is no life outside of the body. If you cut the hand off, 
It doesn't get the oxygen. It doesn't get the nutrients. It just dies and rots. And when the scriptures talk about the healthiest sense of being indebted to one another, it is not under the crushing condemnation of failure, but the richness of relationship with meaning and weight and responsibilities. And responsibility is not a bad word. Responsibility didn't come into our vernacular after the fall. That responsibility is something that is perfectly wonderful without sin. I don't really know how it works without sin because usually my brain is still trained, though I am trying to have the heart of Christ be more impactful in my mind, that debt is a crushing thing that I want to pretend that the 2nd and the 15th of the month don't actually exist because that's when I service my debts. And I dread the 2nd and I dread the 15th. But Paul doesn't dread it. And Paul wants us not to dread a healthy, wonderful, rich relationship with God which can rightly be described as a debt to the one who made us out of nothing and gave us everything that we might delight and joy and glorify him. But there needs to be a parenthesis because, again, Paul knows that you and I go to, oh, debt, that's a bad idea. Problem is, I am in debt. I'm in debt to the Shylock. I'm in debt to uh, 15 other people. I'm in debt uh, for my seed. I'm in debt for my harvest. I'm in debt as a farmer everywhere. So he talks very powerfully in 12b and on about the flesh. And he does so using language, not surprisingly, that begins to hearken back to the exile and the history of Israel. He says that if you live according to to the flesh you will die. But if you live by the Spirit and put the deeds of the body to death, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now again, imagine that you are so steeped in the history of Israel that the notion of being left, uh, sorry, led by the Spirit reminds you of what happened when God led his people out of Israel by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And that they'd just been through Pentecost and that everybody had heard about what happened on that day when what? Tongues of fire sat on the heads of all of the disciples assembled in the upper room. That being led by the Spirit then took them out into the streets and where with power they proclaimed the reality of a risen Savior. And did so by the power of the Spirit in such a way that even people in their common languages and in their little languages from their valleys and hamlets could hear the good news of a risen King. Being led by the Spirit was always the calling of God's people. It's how He brought them out of the land of slavery, where they were dead, into the wilderness and from the wilderness on an exile journey to the promised land. 
God does not waste his greatest narratives and their imagery, but continues to refresh and engage them and lead his people. We join in with that great crowd of folks, leaving a land of death and slavery and knowing as much as they did how tempting it is to believe that when I was dead, it was better. That there were pots of meat, that work was pretty good, that at least it was reliable and I knew where I was going to lay my head and I wasn't wandering around in the middle of nowhere. At least what seems to be. And so we see in this section Paul beginning to connect all of the people with the story of Israel. That as he wonderfully blends these things together, God is not doing something so bizarre and separate He is actually enfolding people into the story. The new covenant is an enfolding into a story that he has been telling his people ever since the garden, ever since Sinai, ever since David and the prophets. Verses 13 through 15, we see how the spirit of freedom, sonship, puts to death Death. You say, all right, East, well, maybe you and the scholars you're reading have stretched this. Well, except, where is the first time that Israel is described as God's son? It is, of course, Exodus 4.22. When Moses declares and is told by God and then declares that Egypt should let go of the people of Israel because they are the sovereign God's firstborn son. Collectively, they represent, and this is a little caveat, I am all for, many people are unnerved perhaps, but I am all for in places where the Scriptures use language we translate as man for everybody, that we can use other words like humanity. But gender-inclusive language is no help when you run into passages like this where the weight of the passage is that in this culture, the firstborn son got the lion's share and the most status and the title. And so for us to be declared firstborn sons must must be maintained, both male and female. All of Israel was represented, but the the force of it is that whether you are a male or female, whether you're the king of Israel or the lowliest of Israelite, all of you are firstborn sons of the Most High. You have the right and are heirs to the firstborn's portion. It is worth knowing and, grasp, uh, and holding on to the, the power of what it means for all of us to be declared firstborn. To have that right and privilege and honor and responsibility. Hosea 11.1 picks up the same theme of God's people being his firstborn children. And so, therefore, his firstborn son. And therefore, we, we want to hold on to this imagery of exile and restoration of God's people. Israel is my firstborn son. So why would we cry out? 
If we have this wonderful freedom in the Spirit and we have this great adoption, why then are we crying, Abba, Father? Is it just celebration? Well, sometimes it is. And this is the beauty of uh, the quote on the front of your worship folder, is that this activity of crying out is not one-dimensional. Sometimes it's a crying out in the Psalms of praise, and the same Greek word translated here is used in the Psalms as they translate the Hebrew to celebrate what it means to have direct access and cry out to God. And some of it is in great anguish, and some of it is barely audible, which is why when we get a little later in this chapter to the Spirit groaning with us, it's still a crying out. You and I cry out on different days and in different ways because we are experiencing at that moment different emotions and experiences. But what is common to all of us is that we cry out to one we call Father. Whether in the quiet sobs or joyful celebration, we have a God we can cry out to and call Father. And the Spirit confirms with our spirit in verse 16 that we are heirs. That not just do we have a Father, but that we have a Father who gives us generously what we need. And, again, interestingly enough, in Christ, you deserve. You see, heirs have a certain way that they can say, that's mine by right. Now again, this is a dangerous thing for us to wrestle with, but at the same time, we can't minimize the fact that because I am a new creation in Christ, I actually have rights that I've been given to cry out to God. Now, do I understand all the implications of what that means? Does that mean I get what I want? No, 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 no. But we have rights. Rights because what Christ has done, we have an ability to claim, you promised me. And since I was going to fail, you were the only one who could make these things happen. Father in heaven, deliver that which I could never deliver for myself. We are heirs. There is a right and a responsibility as heirs. There's a right to cry out, but there's a responsibility because we are heirs with the King and the Messiah, and that's where 17 begins to move us into what is the family business. You see, as heirs, we are a part of the legacy of our Father's house. And in that great tradition that if you grew up in uh, most centuries of uh, human existence, you were probably going to do what your father and mother did. You just passed down the family business. And it's in that line of thought that this book was written. And it was written with the expectation then that as heirs, We have rights and responsibilities. Not responsibilities that earn us anything. They're just a part of what we do as a family. They are the nature of who and what we are. It's what our dad does. It's what we do. What do we do? Well, apparently, with the fellowship and heirs in Christ, we suffer with him 
in order that we also may be glorified with Him. There is inherently in the work that is done suffering. We can't read the Gospels. We can't read the Old Testament and the faithful saints there, but we can't read the Gospels and not get a sense that it was weighty for Jesus to do His ministry. Not just what happens in those horrible hours of His betrayal, crucifixion, and death, but in His ministry on a daily basis. He was weary. His apostles didn't always understand what he was doing. He was accused of doing things for the wrong motives. He was hungry and tired. He had to withdraw so that he could spend time in prayer. And he even on the night that he was betrayed, cried out to his father and said, is there any other way? If that isn't a person who's suffering, even as he follows... But we might think that that was limited to Jesus until we read what happens to the apostles in Acts. And as they lean into and follow the Spirit, it sometimes goes gloriously well. And wonderful people are converted and no doubt there is rich peace and fellowship. I would love to have sat at Lydia's house. She seemed to have uh, both fine... uh, fabric and a fine house and was able to bankroll a church. And then there were the times when Paul was stoned and they thought he was dead. And then he got up and a day and a half later has to walk to the next town. And he has the grief of not knowing to what degree his family has or has not understood the good news of the gospel, and his heart breaks, and he suffers, desperately wanting those he loves and grew up with to know the joys of the Messiah. He suffered. Jesus suffered. There's no way we can insulate ourselves enough in suburbia or in our own subsets to eliminate suffering, and it really shouldn't even be a goal. Because you can't have a goal to limit suffering in your own life and read verse 17 and imagine that you're going to be engaging and following the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean willy-nilly. It doesn't mean uh, in some way courting it unnecessarily, but just recognizing that as we love one another and love the world around us and reach out, to take them into our homes and they have different sleeping schedules and they keep us up and they fight with our kids or any number of ways in which taking people into our homes who aren't our family can be disruptive. And that's why we want to make sure that we are caring for and supporting those in our church who are called to do that because Not that any one of them would like a plaque that says Sufferer for Jesus and we could come up here on Sunday and present them with the plaque that says Sufferer for Jesus and then they could get attention. That's not why they're doing it. That's not what I'm saying. But we shouldn't deny the fact, nor should it be minimized, that we suffer for one another and we suffer for the other and we're doing so in line with what it means to be heirs with Christ. Not earning His pleasure, but glorifying Him through our actions. Because we're acting like our big brother. We're taking on the family business of the father that he taught his son through the things his son suffered.
so that we might be glorified with him. God's glory is seen in some way, and this is not always, but in one clear way, when he cares for, leans into, and bears the burdens of his creation, which he has no requirement to do, but does so because of his character and his love for those that he made, those that he knit together in their mother's wombs, those that he knows their beginning, their middle, and their end. And each one of them has dignity in his eyes, and he cares for and loves and grieves. So this morning, how do we come to terms with being a debtor? I want to encourage you to think through how a healthy understanding of being dependent, of owing God a debt, isn't the same thing as always feeling like and telling the enemy that it's a lie, that somehow that now becomes an oppressive notion in our heads. Satan wants you to think that's a horrible, oppressive thing. Do you realize for eternity you will be a debtor? Because if God stops thinking about you, you won't exist. It's just the nature of our existence. How do we come to terms with that in a healthy way that speaks to the lie of the enemy that says being a debtor is always a shame, always a sign of weakness, always a sign of failure? Secondly, practically, how does Jesus' ministry and Paul's illustrate what suffering looks like? And we talked about some of these in my illustrations in the sermon. But in your life, what does it look like as we see Jesus minister to the Samaritan woman at the well or to the Pharisees as he has theological conversations with them or speaks in the temple courts or heals the lame and the sick? and is accused of being aligned with the enemy. There are ways in which your life reflects or doesn't. Should you be avoiding more suffering perhaps than you should? How does Jesus' ministry and Paul's illustrate our calling to suffer? And then finally, how is their suffering explained uh, how does their suffering explain what glory really means? Because the world would tell us what glory means. It means winning. Winning in particular ways that are defined very temporally, very short-sighted. But glory, glory is in the lives that are dignified and lifted up in a way that often counts us having lost some of our at least temporal, sense of glory or security or comfort? How is their suffering explained to us what glory really looks like? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And fear comes to tell us that you're not deep enough, that you're not wide enough, that you're not gracious enough. 
And that, Lord, if you call us to do anything, you've changed the rules and are now making us earn our salvation. Lord, may we speak to the, the, the falseness of that. May we relish that we are completely at peace with you. And that in that peace, we might enjoy, even in the difficulties, what it means to follow you. And may you be glorified in all that is done. In Christ's name, amen.